Good morning, Grace Assembly, and welcome to Resurrection Sunday. I'm so thankful that you're here to join us today. And before I really begin, I just want to take a moment to thank a few people that have really worked hard the last month. We've got a a digital media team that has jumped into action and from the moment that we recognized we weren't going to be able to have live services have worked so hard to put together this opportunity so that we could join together in church even though we're not in this building. We also have interpreters that are working incredibly hard to send the message of Jesus Christ to those that are hearing impaired and I'm thankful for all of you. And I also want to thank our worship team because I know many of you in your homes this morning have just been basking in the presence of the Lord as you have sang and as you've listened to the songs. And for all of that, we are exceptionally grateful today. This morning, I want to spend a few minutes and share with you about the topic of heaven is open. There's a passage of scripture. And again, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles. I hope that you have one nearby and that you would open it to the book of John chapter 14. I'm going to be reading verses five and six from there. The scripture says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Normally, when we think of Easter, we think of things being full. We have Easter baskets for the kids that are full generally this time of the year. And as they're waking up, they're looking through the house to find all the baskets filled with candy and toys that they may have. Normally on an Easter, our churches would be full. In fact, we had been planning for months for this service, wondering what we were going to do with everybody as as the parking lot got full and how we would bring you in and how many services we would have to have in order to service everybody that wanted to be here. And then after Easter, the restaurants in our area would be full as people make reservations weeks ahead of time to try to get to their favorite place. And then Of course, we know that there are families that Easter is a time when their family rooms would be full. The kitchens and dining rooms would be full as they're pulling out all the tables and multiple generations of family get together and the table is spread and it's loaded with the food. And some of that we are missing on this Easter. At the end of those meals, stomachs would be full. And then for many of us, We would fill the rest of the day with sports, which we have been missing. Some of us would be watching golf tournaments and NASCAR and baseball, and all of that is missing this Easter. And today we are poignantly reminded that Easter also brings some things that are empty. When we hear the word empty, we think that there are things that are lacking. And of course, the first thing that comes to my mind is the empty tomb of Jesus, Churches may be empty temporarily, but his tomb is empty permanently because of his resurrection from the dead. And also, as I'm speaking into an empty church today, I am reminded that while this building is empty, the church is alive and well. And from what I understand, it's thriving and that there are people that are coming to the Lord all over the place that we may never have met had we had a traditional Easter service today. And then there are some of you today that you're empty because of relationships. You're just feeling the ache of relationships that you miss so desperately that leaves that feeling inside of you that you're just empty. I've received emails and text messages from those this week that would say, Pastor, I am just empty of strength. This is beginning to take a toll on me and the isolation is bothering me and my strength is waning. And today you come to this Resurrection Sunday recognizing that what is empty in you is joy and strength. It just seems to have have dwindled away during this time. 
There are others of you that you are empty in health. We have loved ones and friends from our community that right now are struggling for life as this virus has gotten a hold of them and others that are locked into their homes that are in various stages of recovery. And today you would say, the emptiness for me is I'm empty of health. But there are others of you today that as you approach this Easter Sunday, you recognize that you are empty because you're without something. And you don't know what it is. You just know that something is missing in your life. And you have come to the conclusion, whether you have stated it to other people or not, that I can't go on living this way. And if that's you today, I want you to know that there is hope. And I can't wait to share it with you. Because Resurrection Sunday is a day to celebrate that your emptiness and your disappointment is not beyond the ability of Jesus to fill. There was a neighborhood that my wife and I lived in for 17 years, and across the street from us was the biggest house in the neighborhood. In fact, it took up two blocks, or it took up two uh, building sites, and they had had it on a corner, and it was facing the corner, so whichever way you drove, you were going to get a great view of the front of this home. Occasionally, uh, we would see a car pull into the driveway, and the garage door would open and close, and through the 17 years we lived there, we never met those, those neighbors. In fact, we rarely saw them. I remember each spring there would be a crew that would show up and they would begin to dig out the gardens and they would put new mulch in and they would make the place look spectacular on the outside. And then in the fall they would be there to make sure that everything was ready for the winter. And on one Sunday morning when we got up to go to church, we looked out and somewhere early in the morning they'd put a for sale sign on that house. The sign said that this afternoon, there is going to be an open house. We had stared at this house for so long, we wondered what did it look like on the inside. So we made it a point that afternoon that we were going to go and go through this open house to see the great reveal of our neighborhood mystery home. We apparently were not the only people that were interested in that because by the time we got there and spoke to the realtor who was at the front door, he told us that 49 people had come to visit that home. 47 of us were neighbors from the neighborhood that just wondered what it looked like on the inside. I'll admit to you that our expectations were pretty high, and as we stepped into the front door, we quickly recognized that this house that was built in the early 1980s, that nothing had ever been changed. The carpet was the same. The paint was the same. The appliances were the same, and our expectations took a nosedive. We'd had such great expectations only to be disappointed when we entered in. I don't know about you, but have you ever felt like you are incapable of living up to the expectations of other people? Have you ever sensed that no matter how well you did something, that it was never going to be good enough? Have the circumstances of your life caused you to give up on your dreams because they have been emotionally drained out of you or they've been belittled out of you? If so, you are not alone. Millions of people are watching Easter services that are being live streamed today because they are empty and they are looking for someone to put their hope in. You may be tuning in because you believe that God exists and because you want to acknowledge his existence, you're hoping that if I just watch an Easter service, maybe he'll add blessing to my life because I put my time in and acknowledging him. There's an account that begins to tell us that If all you are doing is acknowledging him without really encountering him, then you're missing the whole purpose of Resurrection Sunday and the the whole purpose of Easter. 
There's a Bible story that addresses someone's life that was largely filled with disappointment and unfulfilled expectations. And until you encounter, you have an encounter with God that can change everything, you would be just like this individual. But here's his story. His name is Jacob. Jacob believed in the existence of God, but his belief in the existence of God wasn't enough to help him face in the face of some self-created crisis. Jacob, as you look at him in this Old Testament character, had a perfect pedigree. He's the son of Isaac, and he's the grandson of Abraham. Everything his grandfather Abraham had received from God came as a direct promise in a conversation and covenant with God himself. The second generation came along, and it was Isaac. And it wasn't enough that Isaac had Abraham as his father. He, too, had to accept God's promises by faith. Everything that Isaac has, he had received because he inherited the promise from his father. Then Jacob arrives. And you have to imagine that for Jacob, the expectations of his dad and his grandpa as to what he would accomplish in his life had to be rather intimidating. And rather than following in the footsteps of his father and his grandfather and pursuing a relationship with God by faith, Jacob rebels and goes about accumulating things in his life through manipulation. And here's how Jacob's life of manipulation started. God had revealed to Isaac's wife, Rebecca, that she would soon be giving birth to twin sons who would represent two nations. One would be stronger than the other. When Rebecca delivers, Esau is the firstborn, and the Bible says that he's a hairy little baby. And as he is being born, Jacob grabs a hold of his brother's heel and is almost fighting to see who could be born first. As they grow up, Isaac's two sons show that they are opposites in personality and desires. Esau is told to us that he's a hunter and he's a brash man. Jacob stays at home and soft-spoken, but he's very quick-witted. One day Esau, while he was out hunting, was, was famished and he was demanding to be fed. And Jacob was there when he got there. And Jacob, being very cunning, uses this opportunity to get Esau to give up his inheritance so that Jacob can have it. And so he was so hungry that Jacob gave him a bowl of soup in exchange for his inheritance as the eldest. Having stolen Esau's inheritance, he now wants his blessing. And one day when Jacob's father Isaac was old and blind and his senses were failing and he knows that he's going to be dying soon, Isaac tells his son Esau, I want you to go hunting because you know how much I love the way you make that wild game. And I want you to bring it to me. And when you have prepared it, I am then going to lay my hands on you and bless you with the blessing that comes from father to son. Esau's mother, Rebecca, overheard that conversation and she loved Jacob way more than she loved Esau. So she began to devise a plan with Jacob how they could deceive his father. And now because they are twins, Esau and Jacob. They probably were very similar in height and maybe even in build. And so Rebecca tells him, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to have you put on Esau, Esau's clothes. I'm going to 
Put sheep's wool on your arms so that you seem to be way hairier than you really are. I'm going to prepare a meal and I want you to take it into your father and I want you to tell him that you are Esau so that when he eats it, he will lay his hands on you and you will see, will receive this blessing from God. And so Jacob does as his mother said and he presents Isaac with the meal and Isaac smells the clothes of Esau and it smells like Esau. Being unconvinced of that, he reaches out and rubs the arm of his son and he feels the hair that is there because the sheep's wool that is there. And he begins to believe that this is Esau. So he eats the meal. And at the end of that, he proceeds to lay his hands on Jacob and give him the inheritance of God's covenant and a greater status than that of his brother through blessing. When Esau returned from the field after finishing his hunt and prepared the meal, he walks into his father ready to receive the blessing only to discover that his brother had come before him and had tricked his father into this blessing. Isaac, though he was dismayed, said, I cannot revoke the blessing even though it's been stolen. It's already been given. This was more than Esau could take. And he tells Jacob, after they are out of the earshot of his father, just as soon as our father dies, I'm going to kill you. Jacob began to live in fear from that moment. And under the guise of looking for a potential spouse, he goes into his father and he receives permission to go on a journey. What actually was happening is that Jacob was running away for fear of his life, worried that his past would finally catch up with him. But one thing that you notice about Jacob at this point is that he had never stopped and cried out to God. He'd never put his trust in God. He has always tried to do things on his own, and he was reaping the consequence of his self-dependence. And as he is running for his life, one night in the middle of a darkness, in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by... Uh, places that he did not understand, didn't know where he was. He's exhausted from running, and he lays down to sleep in a place that he has no shelter and no blankets, no tent, no nothing. In fact, the Bible tells us that he used a stone for a pillow. And here we find the man, the grandson of Abraham, and Jacob is at a point of complete personal emptiness. This is the picture of how Jacob's life had fallen apart. But it was at this low point that something would happen that would change his life forever. We read about it in Genesis chapter 28 in verses 10 through 22 when it says this, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and the north and the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, 
Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven, he said, or this is the doorway to heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on the top of it, and he called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey that I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that when I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. First of all, there are some things that we need to see in this. Number one, Jacob dreams of a door to heaven. He saw three things in this dream. He saw a stairway with the bottom of it resting on the earth and the top reaching into heaven. He saw angels that were going up and down on this ladder between heaven and earth. They were carrying out the will of God that was proving to Jacob that God was at work even when he hadn't seen it before. And the third thing he saw is he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord, when heaven was opened. And in this encounter, the Lord says three things to Jacob. And I want you to remember this. At this particular time, Jacob is friendless. The only one who loves him is his mother. And in that setting, God said to him, I will be with you. Jacob was scared and defenseless and vulnerable, and he's running for his life. And in the middle of that, the Lord says to him, I will watch over you. Jacob was penniless. He was without a wife and looked like he had no future. And in the middle of that, God speaks to him and says, I will bless you and your descendants. I recognize today that there is probably somebody who's listening to me right now and you feel as if God is remote and uninvolved. I want you to know that this dream that's recorded in Scripture says that the perception that you have is a false illusion. Because God is not remote and he is not uninvolved. He is constantly at work and wants to do something in your life today. Verse 13 says, there above it all stood the Lord. He's watching and he is directing the events of mankind from heaven's perspective. God is working to bring about justice and peace and love and to reveal himself to you as the God who can redeem you. Nobody but God is high enough to see how all of this fits together. My wife Cindy and I were on an airplane a number of years ago, and we were across the row from a mother and a boy that was probably about four or five. And it must have been his first flight because as the plane began to take off and begin to gain altitude, he couldn't take it anymore. And he unbuckled himself from the middle seat, and he dives into his mother's lap, and he looks out the window, and then he yells so loud, everybody in the whole plane could hear him. He goes, Mom, I can see the whole world from here. We all began to chuckle and laugh, thinking about it was probably the first time he'd ever seen things from that perspective. Today, if you believe that God could have stopped bad things from happening in your life, then you have to acknowledge that God may have a different perspective on your life than you do. He can see things in a different way than you do, and he's working things out in such a way that you can give glory to him and he can be at work within you. 
The Bible tells us that when Jacob woke up from this vision, he was afraid even though there was not one single word that God had spoken to him that was a word of condemnation. Jacob says, this is the gate of heaven. This is the door to heaven. Interesting that from the beginning of humanity, people have been trying to build a way to get to heaven. Genesis 11 records a group of people that built a tower of Babel to reach heaven. It was intended to be the door for them to get to heaven. It was a place that you came to ascend to see how close you could get to God. We look around today and all religions have tried to build a stairway to heaven. You have the five pillars of Islam or duties that must be performed in one's lifetime in order to try to make your way closer to God. The Ten Commandments of Judaism, the thou shalt nots, the behaviors that disqualifies you from getting close to God. You have the eightfold path of Buddhism, the things that must be done in order for you to gain wisdom and conduct and a mental capacity that can get you close to God. But with Jesus, there is a stunning difference Because this stairway in the dream of Jacob was a prophetic dream of the coming of Jesus who was coming from heaven to man. It was not man trying to get to God. It was God getting to man. It's a stairway of grace. It's God coming to you. It's God standing over you. It's God watching you. It's God caring for you. It's God giving you unconditional love. God's words to Jacob were unconditional. But Jacob's response is so like us. It is, it's just so human in the way that he responds. And so he, he looks at this and he goes, you know, let me just test this out a little bit. And so here's what he says in verses 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey that I am taking, and if he will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I can return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and then I will give you a tenth of everything that you give to me. It's interesting to me that in the scripture, this is called Jacob's vow because I think it should really be redefined as Jacob's contract negotiations with God. And we're all guilty of this. So many people try to play, let's make a deal with God. In fact, right now, there are those of you that are saying, God, if you will keep my family safe during this pandemic, and if this Paycheck protection plan will cover my employer to make sure that I get paid. And if everything goes well in my family, then I will make you my God and I will give back to you what you have blessed me with. But what Jacob failed to understand in this moment that we now understand because of Easter is that the real door of heaven is not a what, it's a who. Because secondly, Jesus is the door of heaven. John 14, 6 has Jesus speaking when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me or no one comes to the Father except through me are the words that he used. 
There's a fascinating interaction that takes place that's recorded in the Gospel of John between Jesus and a man by the name of Nathaniel that gives us incredible insight and clarity into the opening of heaven and the stairway used to get to us. In John 1, 43 through 51, it says, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I don't know what was going on under that fig tree, but there was something that happened there that between Jesus and Nathanael was private and it was significant because whatever it was, it absolutely overwhelmed any of the intellectual doubts that Nathanael had had as to who Jesus was. He said to him, you're going to see greater things than these. If you think that me being able to prophetically tell you where you were was great, wait till you see this. I'm going to open heaven and the angels will be a descending and ascending on the Son of Man. And Jesus uses images, the, the imagery here of angels going up and down, not on a stairway like Jacob had seen and prophesied of, but on the Son of Man. Jesus Christ himself is the door to heaven and is the door for you to God's presence today. This is the Easter story. Heaven is now open to you and it's open to me because of the living Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and offers us the opportunity to walk through him into the presence and relationship with God, his Father. So today, you are now standing at the door of heaven. There are many people who think today, Jesus wouldn't come to me. If you knew what I was like, you would know that God would want nothing whatsoever to do with me. I look at that and I say, why does God come to Jacob when he didn't ask or even pray? And I think it's this, because God is attracted to Jacob's brokenness. Some of you today are thinking on this Easter and you're watching this service and maybe you've never even darkened the door of a church and you're thinking today, why would God love me? Maybe it's because he's attracted to the fact that you are broken and have discovered you have nowhere else to turn and that the answer is as close as answering the knock on the door. You see, Jesus recognizes that we are alone and weak. And in that moment, God reveals himself and he's calling you right where you are right now. You may be wondering, where are you, God, in the middle of all of this confusion and in the middle of all that's causing us fear? What are you doing? And I want you to know he has created a door to heaven and to God's presence. And it's through Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, 
who's at work today to draw you to him. You may be saying, where are you, God? In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus answers that question for you right now when he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. My friend, this morning, this is an invitation that requires a decision. Won't you open the door today? You are standing at the door to heaven. The presence of Jesus Christ himself is knocking on the door of your heart. He's asking if you'll just open the door and let me come in. I'll enter into your brokenness. I'll enter into your emptiness and I will fill the void inside so that you can find you may be isolated, but you'll never be empty again because Jesus will fill the longing of your heart. That's what Easter is all about. Think about it in terms of your life today. Jesus was offered up for all of the sins of all of humanity for all time. He died on the cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And he has now risen from the dead. He has defeated death and hell and the grave. And having done all of that for you, don't you think this morning it's time for you to trust him with your life? I'm going to ask that you would bow your heads with me and I want to pray with you. And there are some of you this morning that need to answer the door. You're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You're feeling the knock in your heart and and there's a knot in your throat. That's Jesus trying to reach you this morning. He wants to come and show you that he is the door that can bring you into the presence of God and fill the emptiness of your heart. So will you pray with me today? Our Father and our God, we are so grateful today that we celebrate the fact that we don't have to find a way to get to you. There's no possible way we could ever build a door to heaven. And so just as Jacob's vision was a prophecy that Jesus was to come, today we recognize that the risen Jesus is the door that came to us so that we could open it and find relationship with God. And so I pray for all of those today, those who are empty, those who are disappointed, those who are discouraged, those who are so filled with guilt and remorse that they don't know what they should do, that at this moment they would say, I receive you now. I'm walking through the door that is Jesus Christ and I want to find my life fulfilled in a brand new way in relationship with God. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with us this morning, there is a number that has been shown throughout this message. We have people on our pastoral staff that are waiting to talk to you, and we so desperately want to enter into a relationship with you and help you grow in the Lord as you have made this decision today. I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us on this Resurrection Sunday, and I pray that it will be an eternity-changing event for you. God bless you.